This is Work Revolution, where we drop the boardroom speak and have real, candid conversations about what's going on in workplaces today and what needs to change in response to our changing world. Today on Work Revolution, I am so pleased to be welcoming my guest, Carolyn Haas. Carolyn has a master's and a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. And in her current role as VP of Product Research and Development at SuccessFinder, she is both an operations executive and a thought leader in HR technology. Uh, She focuses primarily on topics related to the future of work and self-awareness for professional growth and leadership development. Carolyn is also a master trainer and facilitator. Thank you for joining me today, Carolyn. Welcome. But I thought I'd let you talk a little bit about SuccessFinder. What does SuccessFinder do? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that to start. Sure. Um, so SuccessFinder is a cloud-based behavioral assessment tool that predicts success and satisfaction in the workplace. Um, really, our goal is to help people uh, understand themselves better um, so that they can make better career decisions, you know, throughout the career life cycle. But at the same time, we also want to empower organizations to be able to know their people better. So to really understand them and be able to uh, offer them opportunities that are aligned with who they are um, and to just better, better understand their workforce as a whole to be able to um, make better decisions about their talent. Yeah. And, and you and a lot of research goes into this, right? Because you have to benchmark, you know, what does success and satisfaction look like? What do those behaviors look like? And uh, and then you know, ongoing research, I guess. Because the other thing that's really interesting is, you know, the type of jobs that exist now. Ten years ago, some of those jobs didn't even exist. Yeah, and it's um, yeah. it's a really interesting mix between. Um, the descriptive aspect of what we do, which is really understanding uh, personality at work. So it has its its roots in, you know, uh, personality, um, you know, how people solve problems, how they get their work done, how they interact with others. Um, and then you get to the predictive part, which is really putting it in context based on what industry you're in, what role you're in, what type of culture or company you're in. All of that kind of takes your profile and then puts it in a setting which can have a different level of fit, of course. Um, So those Mm -hmm. two things are really the the aspects of what we do and try to share information on. Right. So I've heard it compared to, in terms of the predictive nature of this, for people who, you know, don't really understand assessment very well, let's say. I've heard it sort of compared to, for example, taking the LSAT in terms of its predictive capability. So the LSAT being a test that will... Uh, predict the likelihood that you would be successful, I think just in law school, not necessarily even as a lawyer, if I have that right. Um, and likewise, there's predictive capability here in term, but, but, but you're looking at a ton of different professions and roles. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, I'd say that that characterization is maybe a little different nowadays. That was the way it was described before because predictive, okay, okay. predictive um, science wasn't as commonplace as it is now. So it was kind of the best example of how an assessment can be used for prediction of success were things like the LSAT or the MCAT for medical school, which they actually don't use as much anymore, but that's a whole other discussion. Okay, Um, interesting. But for us, it's really um, how 
how do you study success uh, for us is to really study people who are successful, who are satisfied in given roles, given context. And then it's a very simple, well, how much does your personality profile, your behavioral style look like those people who seem to love and uh, have success in certain roles? It's a very simple model at its, at its core. It's just saying, do you look like people who love it? Then you might love it. You know, and our confidence that you will love it is based on how strong that relationship is. Um, right. And so at its core, it's very simple. Um, it's really just like uh, computing your similarity to a model, an ideal model. And the ideal one is the one that thrives in a given context or environment. So that's why it can be role-based. Uh, it can be context-based, like culture is something we're starting to see, um, which is not typically measured in the, the way that we do. Um, and then for things like levels of leadership uh, and styles of leadership are things that we also try to predict for people who really demonstrate that well, are known for it, uh, have proven past performance in certain areas. Well, then we'll be able to say, do you look like those people in terms of naturally how you think? That's really where we, where, where our expertise lies is the foundation of your personality, what's natural to you. So we don't take into mm -hmm. account your experience necessarily. It's more to say that just on your own, the way that you're, you're, you're kind of, I don't like to use the word hardwired because it's a little too fixed, but you know, the way that you, you t typically tend to operate your favorite way of operating. Um, how mm -hmm. does that fit with what's going to be expected from you if you find yourself in these contexts? So in other words, if you're, if you're utilizing your behavior and style at work that comes most natural to you, you're more likely to fit in. You're more likely to be happy and successful. Absolutely. Because you're, because you're using stuff that comes natural to you. You're not having to try to, and I see this happening with a lot of people in work environments. A lot of people I've coached over the years where they're working so hard to sort of twist themselves into a pretzel to try and fit in and some, and they can do the work. Sometimes it's not that they can't do it. They no, can do not it. Not at all. It's just that it's just that doing some aspects of it is maybe it doesn't come as natural for them and therefore it takes so much more effort and so much more um yeah, like energy going into it, I guess. And I yeah. think it's kind of, there, there's two sides to it. One is you have a finite amount of energy and resources and self-regulatory, you know, abilities uh, in a given day, in a given week. Uh, but just as a human, it's a battery and it, it has a certain uh, capability. Um, and if you're constantly self-regulating in life, not just at work, but if you're constantly trying to go against your natural behaviors, um, that can be very draining. It's exhausting, right? You have to put effort into mm -hmm. being different than the way you are um, mm -hmm. all day. For example, if it's a job that mm -hmm. most of what's required of you is different from who you are. So what we try to mm -hmm. say is, well, maybe it's not a perfect match, but ideally most of what you have to do in a given day is very closely aligned to you. And the difference with that is not only does it not drain your energy, it gives you energy. You feel so in sync. You feel like you're contributing. You're just being yourself and it's going well mm -hmm. and you're contributing in a way that is really contributing, uh, you know, your, your, your unique and natural value. So that's something that yeah, and I think, makes a difference. Yeah. And I, you know, the people I've worked with over the, I think that's like, that's like the, the thing that every 
employee, I think, for the most part, unless they're already so broken that they can't, you know, they, they're, they're, they're not, uh, they've given up in a way, or they've got too much other stuff going on. But I think everybody wants that, right? Everybody's like, I want that feeling of I'm making a difference, I'm contributing. That, that sense of purpose and meaning is so important for people, right? Um, and, and, and I feel like there's so many on a journey trying to find that, but they're running into various obstacles and things that are just getting in their way sometimes. Or they experienced it at a certain time and they haven't been able to get that back, which I think is sometimes yes. something that happens to people, um, yes. either because they, they changed roles or they moved up the ladder too quickly and they, they're kind of losing a sense of what they liked. And then really exploring it is to say, well, all the things that you continue to get more of were the things you didn't like as much or the, and that became so central to the role that now you have to do more of that and less of the stuff that you really did enjoy about this kind of work, which is really interesting when you see things evolve like that. But I agree, some people are chasing it. And when you've experienced it, you, you want that so badly for them. That's like, I, I, I sometimes describe them like, it's like butter, you know, it's so smooth. It feels right. It just works differently yeah. than when, when there's friction. And there's no perfect context. You also don't want to set expectations that every role and every environment and every interaction is going to be so aligned with who you are. But ideally, most of it is, you know, that's really where yeah. all your energy is going to contribute what you have to offer, basically, uh, no matter yeah. the context, like when you're stressed, when you're tired, like you're still giving what you need to give. Uh, and it doesn't yeah. feel like that kind of effort. Yeah. I think some people, I've heard it called being in the flow. I've heard some, in some contexts, people refer to it like that. Yeah. And wouldn't that be lovely? And to have everybody, to have as many people as possible contributing in that way would just make, well, I think it would just make the world a better place. Right. Well, I think <laughs> and it's a combination, right? It's sort of a combination of, like you said, that self-awareness because yeah. you really have to, you really have to get yourself and do a lot of self-work, I think, to get there, to feel comfortable enough to show up as Absolutely. yourself. And then also, it's it's the, and I do think environments and structures and organizations do need to do a lot of their own sort of self-reflection on an organizational level, if you will, of their culture. Like, are we, are organizations doing enough to, to empower people to show up as themselves and all of that? So it's sort of a two- two-pronged thing I guess or maybe it's multi-pronged I don't know but it's a it's a dialogue and conversation that has to happen with ideally the right you know the right mindset going in to say the more closely we can align what you need and what you bring to the table and what I need to fulfill my my strategy and to to be the company I want to be if that's aligned then this is going to be a great you know a great work setting for you because I will get what I need from you and you'll be happy to contribute it to me. And like, that's, that's kind of the, the new relationship that a lot of companies really hoping to build their employer brand and build a, build an environment that really helps people thrive and grow in their careers is, is, mm -hmm. is really interesting. And that's kind of the, the dangerous side of all of this, like happy, fun workplace. You realize too, that like, most, some, you know, yes, that's fun, you know, a pool table in the office and like a happy hour Fridays. But um, a lot of what people still want is, you know, 
a manager who stretches and grows. That's like, uh, grows me. That's the number one thing that employees always want more of, for example, or, you know, an environment where I'm challenged always comes up as something. They don't feel challenged enough. So it's kind of, well, what do you need to feel challenged? And how is it not just like a one-time shot? Okay, this should be hard enough for you. No, instead, it's like, these are the right kind of projects. And I'm going to think of you because I know this is the kind of challenge you'd love to take on. And that would nourish you in the process. It's uh, mm-hmm, it takes, mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's an ongoing discussion. It's ongoing conversation. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about leadership. I do want to dig into leadership more, but we're sort of going down a path now a little bit more around this idea of the people and the culture mm-hmm. aspect. So, so um, we, we talked a little, we, you and I have talked a little bit about that before this sort of idea of like more people centric organizations and this idea of, of happy employees and, and, and that now there is starting to be some actual research or data around, oh, happier or more content employees, I don't know what word you would use, are more productive. What, talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, um, it's, it's the thing that comes up because there's so much effort going into it. But the polls still show that 70% or so of, uh, at least I think it was uh, Canadian employees are disengaged, you know, or, or not very engaged at work. Still, 70% of like yes. the workforce is It's not. alarming. And so you see there that while there's tons of investment being done for certain things to keep people happy, are they leveraging the right things? You know, and are they really aligning some of that spend in the right place? That's something that uh, we, we've talked about at my company a lot. We've spoken at different conferences on the topic to say, you know, pouring all this money, where's, where's the return? You know, are people really getting happier? And it shows that like, we're still not fully there. So, so I think that's something that's interesting is most people aren't that engaged at work. That's the starting point. Um, Mm -hmm. that being said, the more they are, the more productive you can have them. And that's something that's really interesting. It's a lot harder to demonstrate from a research perspective because you have to be, first of all, um, checking the pulse on engagement in your organization frequently to be able to understand what are the different drivers of that. We've done some studies where we looked at, um, what manager behaviors lead to higher engagement ratings in their teams, which is sometimes really interesting because you'll have behaviors that they do that really boost engagement in their teams. And then you look at the performance of those teams and you see that they do well. And you even see behaviors that they do that decrease the engagement, actually change, you know, and decrease them. And some of them are very counterintuitive things that you thought were well standard management, you know, practices that can actually do that. Um, but it really varies. Do you have an example of that? Like, is, do you have an example of a behavior that would be that, have that demotivating effect that it's not intended, right? Like sometimes. Um, some of it can be the ways in which feedback is delivered. Others can be as simple mm-hmm. as offering uh, financial incentives to people who don't want that. It can be a demotivator to say, cool, that doesn't change anything in my, uh, in my experience. So to kind of like discuss things in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it yeah. really depends. It depends team to team, manager to manager. Um, but it definitely mm-hmm. shows that you can really um, see the flows of engagement. It's not a stable 
a metric as, as others. And you have some companies that do like weekly pulse surveys, like uh, the manager prompts, you know, through a, an HR technology, uh, a little software that says, you know, hey, uh, how are you feeling today? Or how was this? How did this go? A lot of feedback loops around continuous praise to try and keep those energy levels up. A lot of reward systems being built in around things like praise and feedback loops, either from peers or from your manager. Um, and then they have like rewards incentives. So there's a lot of creative things being tried out to try to keep mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. energy and, and engagement up and to make uh, employees feel like you're, you're pulse, you're pulse surveying them for a reason because you, you have to do something. You have to act if you find out that it's low. That's one of the biggest things people have seen is that if they survey employees to find out how they're doing or what they'd like more of, they better act quite quickly afterwards. If not, engagement will plummet further. Right. Yeah. There's nothing worse than asking a bunch of people for feedback and then they give you the honest feedback and then and, and that contributes to what I, I, I sense as, as I think I've mentioned it to you before, maybe a, a sense of some cynic, growing cynicism about corporations in the world of work. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you go into your next, it's like I equate it to a relationship. Once you've had some bad experiences and you've got this bit of cynicism, you go into your next work environment and you're maybe a little more guarded you're, you know, it's like, it's like when you go through a nasty breakup and then you're, you go to the next relationship and yeah, you're not as quite as ready and willing to give freely and completely and to trust freely and completely, sure. you know, and that bit of guardedness means that kind of shows up as not being as engaged as you might be too. And the biggest one is the walk the talk for organizations today. You know, they have, um, uh, showing their values. You know, it's on your website now. What are your corporate values? What's your employer brand? Uh, which becomes, you know, uh, one, in, you know, closely linked to your, your, your brand in general, your brand promise to your clients, your brand promise to your employees becomes really important. And then if you manage to attract talent that comes in, they're going to be scrutinizing whether or not you really walk the talk once we get there. Like, yeah, the interview process went well. Uh, yeah, I really like what you, you seem to be all about, worked well. But it's kind of like the, you know, COVID is a great example. Those like moments of truth, you know, um, those how did we respond? How are we listening? Are we, you know, caring? And I think some organizations have really shown that, you know, they're, they're responsive, they're taking care for their employees, they're, they're offering uh, stipends to help with a home office life, they're, um, they're doing mm -hmm. a lot of things like that. But you realize that some people are really just hoping for transparency and frequent communication. Um, it's one of the things we actually did in our, in our organization that was really interesting is we did, we've been doing engagement surveys kind of as things have progressed, have things changed just to keep a, a sense of how people are doing. And we did one recently on post COVID flexible work, which was not one of our main policies before. So it was like, what might you like? What might you be interested in? You know, how is it going right now working from home and what might you want to do in the future uh, differently? And we were collecting this to be able to put together our new flexible work policy. Um, and the first thing that we, 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 we thought of was, let's share the results of the survey. Like that's just a basic thing. If you go from survey to here's our new policy based on the survey results, then people, it's kind of like, it's a, it's a blank box and you're like, oh, okay. And you might question certain decisions versus to say survey, 
guess what? You know, this is what came through. Did you know that most people said this and most people want that? And like, this is what our people want. And we're going to build a policy based on what you told us. And first we have to share mm -hmm. what you told us, which was, I think, really nice for people to see. And, and people mm -hmm. were talking about it. They're like, oh, I didn't realize that uh, most people really want to work from home uh, after COVID. I thought it was just me. Or uh, I, I definitely said I would need a chair to be able to work from home, a comfy chair. And I didn't realize everyone else said the same thing, chair more than monitor, more than this. Like it's, it's a nice way to get that dialogue going and to say, we hear you. And you also get to know what environment you're in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The chair was critical. It was like chair or cover my Pilates and chiropractic bills. Oh my goodness, <laughs> the chair, right? all the difference. The chair, all the difference in the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Who, who knew it would be so critical? Mm -hmm. um, it's, and what, what you're describing to me, the image that comes to mind for me is sort of letting your culture, like your culture should be bubbling up from the employee base. Your culture is really you figuring out what's going on for people and let that inform what you decide your culture is, as opposed to get a couple CEOs together at a retreat, blah, 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 have a bunch of talk and blah, blah, blah. And then, okay, now we're going to, this is what we want our culture to be and what we want our values to be. And then some, now we have to have a strategy as to how we're going to cram that mm -hmm. down the pipeline. I, it just, it just seems almost a backwards approach. You know? well, like what you're talking about seems very different. Well, it's actually interesting because the way we study culture and the way we build our predictive culture fit solutions is both. It, it's a bottom up approach, which is definitely the way culture should always be assessed because it's a collective kind of phenomenon. Um, it's an emergent thing. Culture is emergent. Um, but at the same time, the top-down aspect is important for an organization to be able to understand, like, the values should always be a little uncomfortable. They should stretch you a little bit. And that's something that a, um, a um, like a PR firm told us when we were talking about our, we were working on our brand and our, our values. And they said, well, do you feel like this is exactly who you feel you are today? Cause it should be a little, a little more than that. You know, it should be just like strategy. It should be taking you further to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And that's where the top down aspect is actually very important to say some of this is who we are. And some of this is who we want to be. And we're not quite that today. And the way we do it is we kind of look at both and we say, okay, who do you want to be slash think you are? Who are you today? If we take a snapshot of your people and then you kind of decide, you say, okay, so this really is part of us. But in order for us to be competitive, in order for us to um, take our business further, we're going to need more people like this. And we don't have those people today. So to operate that sort of shift and that stretch it's important to have both pieces, but to recognize which part fits in with which. Like, what did we think we were that we actually are? What did we think we are that we're not today and that we want to be? And what are some things that we didn't know we were? And that's really fun from the emergent side, too, is did you know that this is actually a big part of who you are? And that can sh sometimes shape an extra value that you didn't really know you were. Ours uh, that came through, which was really interesting, an extra cultural value of ours is seriously chill, which is the kind of thing that if you know us, you know that to be true. But if you just look at our products and like working with us in a business setting, um, and we were really excited to add that value because it's, it's very us, seriously chill. Yeah. 
Oh, that's so cool. I love that. Yeah. yeah so, it, so in essence, it's like there's an aspirational, there has to be this little aspirational sure. element. Otherwise, what are you striving for? But I think what's key is as long as, uh, that, as long as the leadership team is also demonstrating and aspirational about it, because I think what happens with the, when we get this cynicism about it is when, like, well, walk the talk is, is mm-hmm. exactly what you were just saying, right? Like if, if, if employees don't see that, then they start to really check out, don't they? And, and organizations need a bit of a check too. It's, it's, that's one of the reasons why I love sort of, you know, people data and people analytics, which is, you know, a new added piece of data to what people crunch in terms of numbers um, is really to say, well, is that who you are? And we've had a few instances where we did some exploratory projects. This was a few years ago before it was as much of a thing. We just said, oh, we've assessed so many people in your company. Let's take a look at some of the trends. And we realized that there was a company that wanted to be more innovative. It was a big push, like innovation. And we had looked at their selection kind of data for the last few years. And we said, do you know that you systematically rejected the candidates who were more creative and you kept adding in people who were looked exactly like you were now, you know, much more rational thinkers, very defensible arguments. So you've been actually not hiring those people and taking yourself further away from that. And that kind of feedback mm-hmm. is really eye-opening to companies because they don't realize that it's kind of entrenched across their recruitment practices or managers selecting people who are maybe a little more similar will fit in well with the team today and won't really like challenge the status quo. And then you say, well, how are you planning to get there then? And that's sort of the root of diversity challenges, isn't it? Is this idea of there's something systemic going on and sometimes it's hard to identify. And, um, and then that really gets in the way of getting that diversity. And then at the same time, with the example you just gave, I would imagine, then if, if you've decided as an organization that innovation is a key, uh, key value, this is, this is really important, and you start telling everybody, be innovative, be innovative, be innovative, and then you have a bunch of analytical people going, uh, uh, I don't know how to, what, I, yeah, where do I start? And then it's like this spiral, right? So it's funny, a few years ago, it was innovation. That was the one. Now? Agile is the new innovation. Agile learning. Agile is the new innovation. I was looking at like uh, my new research projects, which are are more on agile. And, um, and it's so funny. I'm like a few years ago, we were talking about innovation and now it's, it's, it's all agile, but it's the same thing. It's like, we need more of that. And I was talking to an organization that I'm going to be doing some research with because they have some agile pockets on the tech side. And they said, you know, we get theoretically, how to do agile, but how can we be agile? And I was like, oh, that's, that's a very different question. That's like bottom, top, across your organization. For some of those systemic things, it's like you can't suddenly start hiring or promoting agile behaviors if you don't have agile managers who know how to really put that into practice. And you can't have agile managers who report to senior leaders who are not also strategically agile and demonstrate agile leadership at that level. So it's sort of, well, if you really want to be agile rather than just practice it in certain areas, that's a big change. And what we like to help with is where are you starting from? And then, you know, let's start there. Where are you starting from? 
And then also, mm -hmm. what's it going to take? What are the behaviors that you should be leaning more towards? And that fit between how natural will that be for the people you have today? Or do you need some people who naturally are like that? Because if not, you're going to try to take a world of people who were not hired for that and who don't, don't come with that. They have great strengths, but that's not necessarily it. And just try to force mm -hmm. them into a totally new shift. And uh, yeah. going into that blindly is what so many organizations sometimes try to do. Uh, and then yeah. it doesn't really work. And then you lose some of that trust with the employees where they're saying like, that's not going to work. And this, uh, I was talking to a bank and they were saying, you know, the people in uh, the risk management areas, it's going to be a bigger stretch for them to suddenly become agile. Like it's the opposite of why they exist <laughs> so, in, in many right. ways, yeah. you know? So it's a yeah. very, yeah. it's a paradigm shift and hard to take the leap if you're all about risk management uh, and taking the leap is risky. You know, it's, um, it's very, very different. Yeah, it's like quite a conundrum for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So it's, it's, it's on one hand, I feel like it's sort of like understanding very basic, simple human behavior, what makes people tick, what motivates and demotivates people. So it's, on the one hand, it's very simple, understanding people and humanity mm -hmm. and then on the other hand incredibly complex oh, yeah. at the same time yeah. yeah 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 that's where you come in the complexity piece yeah we like <laughs> to say we try to decode that complexity so you don't have to but uh i'll tell you it's a daily daily puzzle yeah i bet i bet so let's talk a little bit about leadership i've 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 come to be a little bit concerned about um, leadership these days. I'm, I feel I'm an observer of a lot of things going on politically. A lot of challenges ahead. Climate change is a, a climate crisis is, is, I don't see anybody now doing anything much about it or talking about that. COVID has, has brought a lot of learning and a lot of things to light. And I feel like, wow, you know, and certainly, you know, I, I do watch the situation in the United States fairly closely and, you know, it's brought to light for me, especially in a crisis, especially when we start to face a lot of changes that I think are really coming down the pipeline for, for everyone. We really need great leaders in place, you know? Um, and we need, I think we need people, I call them the type of people who will do the right thing when no one's looking, mm. um, you know, because we can see how, Sometimes people bubble up into leadership roles based on some behaviors and competencies that nobody got in their way, I guess. I don't know. And, uh, and then it turns out, ooh, not so good in a crisis or not the type of people you want to put a lot of your trust and faith in necessarily. So let's just talk a little bit about leadership competencies and what you're seeing. And Sure. Um, you know, I think... Part of the challenge of what you're saying, at least from, from what I'm able to study, you know, we, we come at it from the, the, the behavioral side, the, the, the personality side, is the challenge between a moment of truth where you have to really show certain behaviors and the day-to-day. -day. So, right. You know, the, the, the yeah. behaviors that make you a high-performing leader in the day-to-day, -day, a lot of them are sometimes not the same ones you need to leverage in a crisis or you need to leverage in a, 
in a situation like this. And I think that's part of what you're mentioning. Like when people aren't watching, it's like, it was there, but I wasn't really using it or it's not there because I never had to use it. And that's not why I'm here. So I think that's something that's very interesting in, in what you're mentioning is there's a lot of leaders who are there because they take, um, you know, decisive action, they move forward, uh, they use their practical sense, they're good at bottom line benefits, you know, they, they push uh, people further than they ever thought. That's how organizations grow and tackle, you know, all the challenges that they face. Um, and they're great at getting, you know, stakeholder buy-in, you know, it's a lot more like at the C-level, like that's, that's the job. That's the job. Mm -hmm. That's what it takes to do the job well. Um, and that's kind of different from when you have very proximal relationships with your team and your, your mm -hmm. workforce. And uh, let's say you're a lower level manager, you really need to empower your team you know, you have to get work done through others every day, specific tasks, specific smaller projects. Um, you have to, you know, encourage them, build trust uh, so that they can work really hard to help you get your projects done. And that reality is not primarily the job at higher levels in the organization. So if you really want to say, what does it take to be successful? I'd say 90% of the time, 99% of the time, that trust building, empathy, uh, sensitive understanding and exchange is not the day in, day out of an ex a senior leader's life ne necessarily. Now, I'm saying this typically, you know, across the board. If that's part of the CEO's or C-level's values already, you know, to, to have a very human approach to the business, I'd say that that's sometimes a bit tricky to balance because some of those things make the day-to-day -day trickier. For example, the, the realities of the day-to-day -day a bit trickier. Um, and so finding all of that in one person is ambitious. You know, uh, people are, people are tricky, idiosyncratic, and you can't expect perfection from everyone. And, you know, they have, they have styles that characterize them. So I think that's part of the challenge is that there is a core that's required to run a business, grow a business, uh, have a business withstand what it needs to, that is sometimes maybe um, the inverse of what you need in a crisis. So it can sometimes be more challenging for certain leaders to demonstrate that because that's, you know, they're not particularly excellent at that. And when you do find people who are, who, who have, you know, all in one, are they unicorns? Is it a question of development? Which is easier to learn and grow? That's a big question right now. You know, um, a big push around all this automation and future of work is like, what are the foundationally human competencies or, or styles that like a robot can't easily emulate, for example, it's like things like that, that, we're trying to hone in on because those mm -hmm. are the things that count most in certain situations. But sometimes getting it all in one package is, is quite difficult. And so maybe, maybe you're right. Uh, yeah. And so maybe it's more around the self-awareness of here's the stuff I can contribute because it's what I'm best at, but I'm going to have some people around me sure. who, who bring something different and compliment mm -hmm. but also i'm going to have the wisdom to listen to those people absolutely you know tell me a little bit about we talked a little bit before about this this trifecta i don't know what to call it i called it the, well, the triangle um, of power in my note too <laughs> i don't know if it's a yeah. triangle of power it's sort of like the, <laughs> the optimal maybe 
business team at the top and I'm, you know, it's, it's a new idea, not that new, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like an optimal idea, I guess, for, for how things mm-hmm. should be run that, that some businesses are basing themselves on, which is the CEO, the CFO, head of money, and then the, the CHRO, chief of human resources, now called like people and culture often. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of grouping is kind of what you need to run a business. Um, my perspective, and I, I, I share this a lot with people, is you know the biggest competitive advantage that companies have is their people. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. I obviously believe that uh, to be true, but it's who, who's going to execute your strategy? <laughs> it's the people. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that that idea that you were saying is, you know, that's if the if the the HR department is focused on understanding its workforce, really understanding like these are the types of people we have. These are the types of people we attract and can recruit. This is the kind of talent we have or the kind of talent we typically lose. Um, and, and this is how it shapes the culture. And these are, you know, the, this is the quality of managers that we have. This is the style they have. So getting them to do something different is going to be trickier. Um, you know, especially I, I, a lot of challenges in in unionized environments that make this super complicated and complex. Mm -hmm. If you have that kind of ear to the CEO and to the CFO for how resources are getting allocated, that a lot of that, and and the challenge has been that that hasn't been very data-driven and demonstrating an ROI on certain initiatives has been very tricky for the CFO Mm -hmm. to listen and even for the CEO to make decisions based off of that, you know, important decisions based off of that. But when that's present, it's really interesting to see how well that works in really shifting an organization or, you know, changing the dynamic or having them suddenly get way more done with way less. Um, it, it has the power to do that. But it's, it's, it starts, you know, that at the top, that has to be the way it's, it's happening. And I've seen CEOs who either come in as, you know, trying to transform a business Sometimes that's the first thing they do is like they really have to understand the people and they know this. And that's going to be one of the biggest things like who is going to be the, 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 the chief people officer that, that I have on my side to really help me do the change that I'm trying to do. Um, that becomes mm-hmm. super important that I think is really uh, essential, especially with the way the nature of work is changing. It, it shapes your business so much. You know, what if you have to operate with a 100% remote workforce all of a sudden what does that mean for you that's like that that puts a little uh, clink in your strategy mm-hmm. and you're right and this is where hr has kind of struggled over the years right is being at the table at that level yeah. as opposed to i've seen organizations where literally hr exists to provide white glove service to the executive team and i'm not i'm not exaggerating when i say that um to so it's so it's being at the table, but I think what you're saying also is that the more that you have data, you can be at the table because you now can, whereas, you know, your finance person and your CEO would be like, yeah, well, that sounds nice, but where's my return on investment? And show me how, show me how you came up with this. It's not just coming from your intuition, you know, mm-hmm. they want to see it. So having that data is where it seems to me the trend in H one of the trends in HR is really, that's what it's all about. And and one of the main ways you're seeing that is HR is one of the, you know, skyrocketing in terms of HR technology, the whole HR tech world 
is because it's built on a foundation of things you can track and measure and things that live no longer in a paper binder on each employee or just on like comp and benefits policies and procedures. It's really like a living document or file or profile. It's more of a profile now on each of your employees and that you can pull uh, trends on, you can pull organizational analytics on, and you can match them with your spend. You can match them with uh, satisfaction from your clients. You can do a lot of interesting things with your data to be able to see the impact of your people on your business results, which is something that is exploding in the world of HR and that is allowing people to invest, but also see if it works, change you know, tactics more quickly. Um, and, and more and more you're seeing companies get into this because it opens up that, that world of possibilities. All businesses right now that are running, you know, that are transforming from a digital perspective, it's because they want to start collecting metrics. And one of those metrics has to be on, on, on people and how they're doing. And, you know, people are getting really invested in tracking things like, you know, performance and engagement day to day, week to week. Some companies are really exploring that. Um, but even just like, you know, really start small, smart, start anywhere, like start, start doing something um, that you can track with people that can help you bring something concrete to your, your C-suite is going to make a huge impact. And that's something that we try to do a lot when we, we come at it. It's yes, you're going to get to know your people, but we also have a heavy focus on the ROI discussion that we can uh, have HR bring. So for example, if um, we help you uh, hire a high-performing sales manager, it's because we've demonstrated that if you get more people who look like your high performers in, they make X amount of dollars more per week. So you should do it this way. And if you use this tool for the manager of these people, you will have X percent dollars more per week. And that's the kind of thing that it's like a Trojan horse, you know, disguised as a really interesting way to understand your employees and the nature of success in this role that also has a compelling argument for uh, the CFO to say, we need more of this. We need to understand this more because that way we can show you that we're doing good work recruiting the right people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> Thank you for that. And my head's going, you know, sometimes my head starts spinning in multiple directions. Um, So I want to get your opinion on some things related to diversity and inclusion, if I can. So the other day I was, um, I was having a chat with my, 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 my sort of best friend from high school and she became an engineer and this is this is this is coming from a couple conversations I've had because I've also had a conversation with Engineers Canada about some of their objectives related to women in engineering, and um, so you know when uh, when you know it was sort of it was that a decade of the '90s I guess when you know my friends and I many of us were going off to post secondary and starting our career. My girlfriend became an engineer, and. Um, you know, at that time, she said she was about, there was about 10% of women were in engineering. And now, you know, many years later, it's still less than 20%. And, you know, I just, I, we were chatting about it. And, you know, I said, did you think, like, when you started out, like, I know for me, when, at that age, I thought, well, yeah, women have had some challenges, 
but that's behind us now because women are doing everything and anything. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have amazing opportunities because we're going into every field now. And we've got pay equity because pay equity was being talked about back then. And so, so we're going to get paid the same and be treated equally and it's going to be fantastic. And now I look back on that and, and in my, some of the conversations I'm having, I sort of feel like, wow, well, I feel like I was very naive, I guess. Um, or maybe I was duped a bit. I don't know. But, you know, I, I guess what I'm asking is like, what do you think is getting in the way I mean, diversity and inclusion is a, is a big deal right now, right? And, and we, can't, we can't really be better as or organizations, as governments, as society, if we don't have a balance, you know? And so what do you think is getting in the way of, of more women and minorities being, being represented, especially in leadership roles? Kind of a two-part two answer. We talked about this, you know, we have more of a history studying the gender side and get, are getting more and more into studying the, the, um, the minorities and, you know, ethnicities. So I won't comment as mm -hmm. much on that, but in terms of what we've seen with women is really, and there's, there's a lot that's written on this, is really more on the more limiting self-beliefs that especially executive women can have about um, when they walk in the door, you know, uh, lower self-confidence and their abilities. So walking into the door with like, I can and I will versus self-doubt, um, having a little bit of a lower sense of self, self-worth, which is more like I have to earn it kind of thing. I don't necessarily deserve it and nothing I've done makes me deserve it more. It's kind of that, uh, that element of it. Um, bit more of a fear of success. So the closer you get to success, the more the sacrifice or the the price you have to pay for it is, is, is something that will hold you back. Uh, so not as prepared to make certain sacrifices required for success. And that goes beyond just like uh, children and, you know, a family life that can be a lot of different things. Um, and even the um, optimism to, to persist in the face of obstacles. So a bit more of a fear of failure uh, that can sometimes mm -hmm. be seen. This is some of the, some, some preliminary studies that we've done that have shown that, it's not like for engineers or for example, you know, a lot of things like, oh, women aren't as good as at math. Like we don't see a difference in like quantitative orientation between men and women. Like we don't see it um, in, in that sense. So it's like, I don't think it's that. Um, and, and we've studied this on a bunch of things that were kind of commonly seen as maybe those are the main differences. Women are more, you know, caring. It, it, honestly, not that much, but it, it comes a lot at some of the more core self-belief systems mm -hmm. that can kind of persist in there to say that they may not go after it as much. They may have more self-doubt. We know commonly that women will wait until they have full confidence in their ability before they raise their hand for something, whereas men will go in with much more self-confidence that they can mm -hmm. do something they've never done before to mm -hmm. feel as though they deserve it, um, which, is, which is one of those ways in which it's different. So I think those are some of the challenges some of them are institutional, you know, where that comes from. Some of them is the way you were raised. You know, you still have to think, even if we're our generation or younger, who are our parents and what are their sort of value systems and belief systems? You know, many people uh, in their early 30s have parents, you know, mothers who stayed home, you know, and which is, which is, uh, but, but a lot more like commonly like them and their friends, mothers, and it, you know, it was a, wasn't necessarily that kind of a, a workforce because it was just starting in the 80s to be really like a, 
uh, women in the workplace, you know, uh, kind of like you were saying, um, to, to that degree. So I think that's one of the ways in which I think you have to also see the, the generational aspect of what still exists in, in the workplace, who's at the sea level today. Um, and, and so that's, that's part of it. There are some limiting self-beliefs. There's institutional limitations, systemic limitations that are there and that have to, you know, shift, shift more, but that, that you still see some of those beliefs and paradigms that, that could have shaped the people who are there today. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the other piece though is, is, um, I think part of it, uh, we, we talked about before too, is around, you know, sponsorship. Um, you know, yes, yeah. it, it's not just about having more women so that they can promote more women. It's having more men that will promote women because they, you know, they, they see that yes. as being a huge asset to their organization. They don't, they don't see it as a, a limitation. It's, it's, um, there are more gendered industries, historically, I think, and, and, and engineering is one, like you said, that might be a little slower to adapt than others. Um, mm-hmm. the, the last piece of it is kind of circling back to what we were saying. This whole notion of diversity and inclusion requires a feedback loop. If you have fewer people at the top who represent those minorities, then you need to help the people who maybe, maybe you're starting to hire them more at the bottom and it's very open and inclusive. Well, then you need to have them uh, involved in uh, sharing their perspective about your product, sharing their perspective about your, your, your values or your culture, you know, uh, understanding how they shape the fabric of it because that feedback loop, if not like with anything, you're going to design it or, or, you know, define it with your paradigm, which is if it's an all white male paradigm, like that's going to heavily influence how it looks. It's, you know, it's, uh, goes down to even all of the machine learning and artificial intelligence that if it's coded by white men, it's going to be very different when you suddenly apply it to everyone. Um, it's the same thing for your strategy and your, your, your design focus and what you sell and how you sell it. So I think that feedback loop becomes a good way. Yeah to start, I guess, to say that, okay, it's not up here yet. How do we start infusing it so that it, it can, it can rise higher, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's sort of like being invited to live in a house that you didn't build. Like you, you can come live here now, but the design doesn't really fit or suit you. It's not the way you would have built it to suit you and where you feel most comfortable. So I think that's a piece that's missing is that understanding that yeah, but wait a minute. They, if if like, in, I'll take engineering just as an example, and I'm generalizing, obviously. But if if women weren't part of how how engineering firms work and how that's structured and how, and the whole the whole way that that system works, they're trying to fit into something. And and I would almost argue that women, yeah, we need that confidence, and so we we have to get rid of those self limiting beliefs that we've somehow just gotten into our our thinking to your point, a lot of variables at play with that. Right. Um, but I, it seems like the women that I've talked to that are, have been in that situation. Cause the other thing about engineering is that the attrition rate is higher. Women leave the, I'm just using that as an example, Mm -hmm. but there's others. Mm -hmm. Women leave the profession more and they retire sooner than the men. In other words, it's like, they can't wait to get out of it. Now, they went, um, you know, when I was talking to my friend, she said, I thought I would be different. I thought I would be seen as one of the guys. I thought it would be fine. You know, and then the first time her boss came to her and said, they did this whole poll around the whole organization. Who wants to travel? Where do you want to go? She was so excited. She was in her 20s or early 30s, 
no, no kids, not married, conquer the world, right? And her boss said to her, I'm not sending you to Africa. She got to go to Newfoundland, <laughs> right? And so, and at the time she said, well, I just thought maybe he was being protection, protectionistic, but then she's learned some things later that, you know, there's probably more to it than that. But you almost, it's almost like the women who ha have to be a, a little even tougher than the guys. They have to be more thick-skinned in that environment. They have to be more resilient in that environment. I think so. I mean, it depends if you're in an environment where you're going to have to fight for it versus in an environment that has, a, has an opening. You know, how you're going to toughen up or respond um, might be a little bit more to you know, you, you always bring your own way and your own flavor to anything, but you, you know, at the same time, it, it's a question of adaptation as well, which is a great skill, no matter who you are, right? Is how are you going to adapt mm -hmm. to your environment? How are you going to leverage what you know about the people around you to be able to figure out how can I best influence them? And that's the mark of any good, uh, you know, executive doing stakeholder management, which isn't just a like men, women thing. So I think that that's something that, um, people who have been very successful at it have been able to leverage the right contacts, have been able to uh, promote their accomplishments appropriately in the eyes of the right people and have been able to make their mark despite a lot of the, um, you know, maybe comments that they've gotten and, and have had kind of the resiliency to uh, continue to push forward with other aspects of their character that have allowed them to do that and that's in a tough environment like it's tough and the people who have gone there will tell you like oh, the things I experienced to get here that you know paved the way for people who don't have to do that as much and that can be as simple as a lot of the things you see where suddenly women make it to the top and then they say let's revise our uh, parental leave policies let's make them more inclusive let's add something from the paternity leave side that uh, kind of changes the game here Let's have, you know, uh, a, a lot of interesting things like that, that take, you know, th that's what you have to do to start to shape it in. It, it's, we have a lot of flexible options for you to make it work for you that, that shouldn't, you know, be an issue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But some of them have to tough it out to get there to do those things. They do. To and be able to, to have that influence, to have that power and influence, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's part of what makes it tricky is people will say like, how are we still fighting for this in, in, in this day and age, you know, kind of like you were saying, like, why is it still mm -hmm. so hard? Why, why aren't, you know, and that's, that's the challenge of, of things being systemic and being in places you don't realize, you know, um, and, and to, to see, you know, if there's, aspects of it that you care enough about like are you going to leave this organization or are you going to try to change this organization from within it's like if you if you don't have mm -hmm. the fight in you then an organization that's that's a bit more you know more there that's already made more progress is going to snatch you and you could have made a huge difference but this organization you know didn't give you that yeah. opening and you didn't want to yeah. you know you didn't want to have to fight for it today you want to go to a place that's already has a yeah, lot of that in exhausting. place where, yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, but yeah. there are people who still try to do that and it can be little gestures. It can be big gestures and it can be also organizations that I think we talked about this last time. It's not a fake it till you make it, but they, they have to be more inclusive to attract better talent. They, you know, they, 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 they have to work harder to, to, to attract good people. Um, 
Yeah. That, that's something that they, they start there and then it ends up transforming their organization because it was originally for another reason, perhaps, but that ends mm-hmm. up leading there. That's, that's also mm-hmm. a way in which this, this can happen. It's, yeah. So it starts with that openness and receptivity to it, right? That accepting, oh yeah, okay. So we've got some maybe challenges with diversity and really, really looking at it and looking at data and then and looking at, well, let's be really open and receptive. And we've got to be willing to tear down a lot of old old beliefs, old things that we might've come into. Yeah. For men too, men have a lot of, you know, built-in beliefs and things. And uh, that maybe are limiting, limiting for them as well. Absolutely. I think that's, that's something that becomes really, really interesting to say, let's say you make that shift and you want to open your doors and change your hiring practices, but no one will apply to your company because of the reputation you have or because, you know, or, so now you have to work harder to really show it, to really start to walk the talk. And again, like I said, like maybe it's because you just, you know, you want this to work for your own, you know, more business objectives, but it it ends up transforming it because if you really want it to work, it's going to have to really happen. And uh, some companies really end up making the leap because of that. They say, okay, it's not really working. Like, yeah, we want to hire more people. No one wants to apply here. You know, uh, employer reputations are making a big, big difference nowadays. You know, you can rate uh, your employer. You have, uh, it's not just salary anymore. It's um, what do they stand for? What was it like to work there? Uh, even LinkedIn, you can reach out to someone and say, hey, I see you worked at this place. Let me know what the culture was like. That's all it takes. A hundred percent. I coach people to do that. Yeah. Who do you know there? Who's in your second level network? Let's figure out who you can talk to. What's their experience yeah. been like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, employees are doing that. And and yes, they, there's lots of sites where you can share. I tra- I call it like the trip advisor for, for career. And do for your due diligence. Right? due diligence. Do your homework, man. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Um, thank you for this today. I have, I, I like to close up. Is, is there, well, is there anything else that you think we didn't cover that you want to share that you want to make sure we get out there into the universe? Hopefully somebody listens one day. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think I can wrap it up as quickly, but uh, as always, I feel yeah. like I could chat with you for hours, you know, about these topics. <laughs> yeah, so. we'll do it again. We'll do it again. Yeah. I would love to. Um, but I'd like to ask everybody a couple things. Do you believe in a calling? Do, are people called to something? How, what's your scientific, uh, I don't know, maybe you have two sides to it. Is there a spiritual element to it? Is there a scientific piece? Maybe there's a place where they blend together. I don't know. I'm not, that, that's not in my personality DNA, I have to say. Um, I'm, I have much more of a um, like pragmatic approach to why I do things, a little more on the rational side. But I do believe that yeah. some people are guided much more strongly than I am with their intuition, uh, with their feeling and a sense of strong purpose that has always been there, that are really guided towards something. I'm a lot more go with the flow, see where the winds take me. Um, that's really yes. more my style. I would argue so. that that is intuition. Uh, it's, it, uh, uh, we can get into it another time. <laughs> I know exactly where it comes from. Okay. Um, okay. But, okay. It's, but it's, uh, so I think uh, some people are, that would be my answer. Some yeah. people are. Yeah, um, some people are. Some people yeah. are, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what's inspiring you these days? What's inspiring me right now? My, my curious uh, research side is um, I'm really curious right now about the shift, those blurred lines between work and life right now. Um, mm-hmm. And in two ways. One is 
your work life is your home life now and uh, everything that that involves but also your workplaces have to care about your home life because it is your work life as well so the whole way nature of of what workplaces have to do for you or care about in your world that goes well beyond just that compartmentalized time that you're at the office um, that I, mm-hmm. I find really, um, I'm really curious to see how this pans out, you know, caring about your psychological well-being because you're trapped at home, uh, you know, caring about your ergonomic posture, if you don't have the right chair, um, you know, all of mm-hmm. these things that were um, very different just a few months ago. Yeah. And um, so what that means for us, you know, post COVID for, for, for a more remote culture, um, for better or worse. It's almost... Yeah. It's almost like a shift to, to like a pre-industrialized almost way of being where we're, where before our, our, like historically our home and work were blended, Yeah, you know, before industrialization. And so I almost see it as, are we sort of coming back to a, um, a better blend of that? I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's interesting. You're right. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm really uh, preoccupying my my work thoughts and my non-work thoughts just uh, in the spirit of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, you and I will definitely have to talk, you know, periodically. Let's stay on top of what's... uh, (laughs) Yeah. As usual, my conversation with Carolyn has been informative and very thought-provoking. A couple key takeaways that I'm thinking about based on this conversation is one of the things is equity and leadership development for women. And if the research is showing us that the number one thing that seems to be holding women back is confidence and their general sense of worthiness and that they deserve to be there in the C-suite and leadership roles, how do we change that? I feel as though it's some combination of self-work perhaps that women need to do to overcome some of their self-limiting beliefs that they've developed. And also, the workplace has a role to play, the actual structure of the organization, the design, and what role do leaders play in that, in the way that they lead and manage. The other key takeaway is the role that HR is playing moving forward, both in equity and diversity and in culture and engagement, Is it HR's job to be the consciousness of the organization? If we're asking women to do this self-work and develop more self-confidence and a sense of worthiness, is it too much to ask that the C-suite also do some self-work, perhaps to develop greater empathy and other skills that would help them be more conscientious leaders? I was also interested in what Carolyn had to say about the increasingly blurred lines between home and work, and what's that going to mean for our equity and diversity efforts? One of the key concerns is with the pandemic, there's a real concern now about women dropping out of the workforce, uh, and especially in the United States, if kids can't go back to school, or if we don't have confidence to send our children back to school. What does that mean for women and work? Lots of things to think about as usual. Please keep joining me for future episodes as we deconstruct some of these issues and look for some new ideas.